Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35 is our text for this morning. You know, it's been said that each of us, each of us to some extent or another, are a product of the people who have come before us, who've invested into us. And um, I'm sure that if I were to ask you for um, your thoughts on this, you could name some individuals in your life, both dead and living, who have been people who have left an indelible mark or impression upon your life. And um, I have those individuals uh, who have had a huge impact upon me since the time that I came to know the Lord. And uh, I mention this because I'm sure many of you know this, but this weekend is Pastor John MacArthur's 50th anniversary at Grace Community Church. And um, 50 years, think about that. I mean, I wasn't even alive when he started pastoring that wonderful church. And um, he's been there for 50 years at the same place. That's kind of a, a different deal. There are men who are very faithful who've been ministering for that long or longer, but not at one church. And so Pastor John MacArthur has been there for 50 years. And, and I know that for us, for this church, um, um, Pastor MacArthur holds a special place. And this church holds a very special place in his heart. Um, there are some of you st- still sitting in here who um, we're very familiar with the ministry of his dad, Jack MacArthur, who founded this church. Uh, John MacArthur ran around here at this church wreaking havoc as a, as a kid, as his, pa- as his dad, um, uh, Pastor Jack MacArthur, uh, preached uh, from this pulpit here. And, uh, and you know, they, they left a great heritage and legacy of many faithful men then following them who have been faithful here at Calvary for many, many years. I kind of stand upon the shoulders of those men, beginning with Jack MacArthur, um, in terms of the legacy of this wonderful church here. And um, so I'm very, very, very grateful for that. And you know, for me personally, when I think about John MacArthur, he had a huge impact upon my life. Um, when I came to know the Lord um, as, a, as a young Christian uh, 25 years ago, 26 years ago or so, um, he, along with my, my pastor at the time, were the men that I would listen to just voraciously, listen to sermons and read everything that they had uh, written uh, on the Bible, helping me understand Scripture. Um, it was through uh, the ministry of John MacArthur that I learned just the importance of being faithful to the proclamation and living out of the truth of the Word of God. Um, it was through John MacArthur's ministry that I learned the value of rightly dividing the Word of Truth, not just for intellectual reasons or not just to be a learned scholar, but because as you rightly divide the Word of God, that's when it's going to bear fruit in your life as you apply it, right? And I know that that's why we believe so much in preaching the Word of God, the unadulterated Scriptures here, because that is what is best for you. That is what's beneficial for the people of God and what's going to lead to your growth and maturity. So a lot to be thankful for. Um, A high view of the church I learned from the ministry of this faithful man who's been used by the Lord in so many people's lives to just have a high view of the Bride of Christ. So I can go on and on, but, you know, the Bible calls us in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, to give honor to whom honor is due. And so as a church, we do want to extend our congratulations to what the Lord has done through the faithful ministry of Pastor John MacArthur and that wonderful church, Grace Community Church, that is really a sister church of ours, isn't it? Um, There are so many people who are there who used to be members of this church and people who used to be members of that church who are here. And uh, we've all, to some extent or another, been the the byproduct and, and, and profited from the men who have come forth from there. I'm a Master's University and Master's Seminary graduate, as you know. 
And I'm very thankful for the Lord giving me the privilege of being able to study in those two wonderful institutions because many young men and, and all over the world don't get the opportunity to even have one year of training like the training that I got by the grace of God. So I'm very, very thankful. And uh, congratulations, amen, to Pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church for 50 years of faithful ministry. Well, speaking of faithfulness, um, as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? There is no one who has been more faithful than our Lord Jesus Christ. No one. No one who measures up to Him. And even all of us as pastors and preachers and leaders and, and all of that can attest to the fact that ultimately we don't compare ourselves and we don't measure our faithfulness in comparison to other men uh, in this world, but we compare our, our and we measure our faithfulness in comparison to Christ to Christ, who he is and what he has done. And if there was anybody that could be said to be perfectly faithful, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who came in in fulfillment of his father's will to this world. And he lived a perfect life on our behalf who have trusted in him, died a sinner's death on the cross, though blameless, and then rose again victoriously on the third day, didn't he? He is the ultimate faithful one. So when we talk about faithfulness, we need to look at him. And that's what we've been looking at even here in the Gospel of Mark. I hope that your heart has been refreshed as we continue to behold the beautiful Christ. Who, by the way, even in pursuing faithfulness, it didn't come without opposition. We've been seeing this in Mark. That he has been opposed by Satan directly. He's been opposed by the demonic realm. He's been opposed by physical rulers, religious leaders. Later on, he will be opposed by the Roman government. That faithfulness by our Lord Jesus Christ didn't come without opposition. And if that sounds repetitive to you, this issue of opposition, then you're getting part of Mark's point. That over and over again, there are individuals and entities in the Gospel of Mark that are opposing Jesus because they know what he has brought to the world. That he's preaching a gospel of light, a gospel of the kingdom. And once again in our passage this morning, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, we see this opposition. And as Mark will use this kind of mechanism later on, we see sort of a a Mark bringing two accounts together here, two narratives really, to make one point and somewhat of a a sandwiching of, of these two narratives. There's somewhat of a sandwich effect here in our passage. And I want you to hear this as I read our passage. He begins in verses 20 and 21 talking about his family. And then he there's a pause. And in verses 22 to 30, the middle section, there is the focus on the religious leaders and their opposition to Christ. And then we get right back in verses 31 through 35 uh, on Jesus' family. The focus comes back to them. So there's this sandwich effect. And Mark will do this later on as well. But we see this here. Listen as I read this passage. Verse 20. And he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. 
But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. Powerful passage, isn't it? Powerful passage, once again, showing the opposition to Jesus. Obviously, we've already seen it from the religious leaders before, but now there's an an, an elite religious group that shows up here, all the way from Jerusalem. And also his physical family shows up, and there's a degree of opposition even coming from his own biological family. And, you know, part of Mark's point in some of these narratives that he continues to present to us is this. Um, for us to, to be able to see the various opinions that people make about Jesus as they continue to seek to understand him and behold his miracles. People have various opinions about him. And part of our job, even as students of God's word, is to, is to kind of ask ourselves, is that me? Am I one of those people who doesn't believe in Jesus in that way? Am I, do, am I one of the mass crowds of people who are, who are fickle and are merely after Jesus because of what he can give to me? That is part of our job, even as students of God's word of the Gospels, as we behold um, the, the, the life of Jesus Christ. And so that's really the approach that I want us to take to this passage, beloved, this morning. I want you to ponder the question personally, and it is this question. Who do you personally believe Jesus to be? I mean, when push comes to shove, who do you believe Jesus to be? And I'm asking this both for those of you who have not turned from your sins and trusted Christ, who have not committed your life to Jesus. And I'm asking this question for those of you who are believers as well. Who do you believe Jesus to be? This is the greatest question for us to answer as we look at the Gospels. And again, not just for people who are non-believers, but for people who are believers as well. Because as our view of Christ goes, so does the rest of our life. As our view of Christ grows, uh, uh, goes, beloved, so does the rest of our life. So I want you to ponder that question as um, we approach this passage by asking three particular questions. Three questions here that I want to pose for you. As you answer the question, who do you believe Jesus to be? And are you part of his family currently? Are you part of his spiritual family? And here's the first question for us in verses 20 and 21. Is Jesus a misguided fanatic? Is Jesus simply a misguided fanatic? An overly zealous radical? You know, he meant well but was just misguided, was just naive about truly the people that he was interacting with. Is he a misguided fanatic? And if you dig deep in your heart, 
even though you would never put it in that kind of terminology. I think as we dig deep into this text, we might find that many times, even without knowing, we might have a very low view of Christ where we actually see Jesus like this, or we have similar opinions about him because of our low view of Christ. So is he a misguided fanatic? Notice in verse 20, it says that he came home. We know from chapter 2 and verse 1 that Capernaum had become his home, his headquarters. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Here we see again, as we've seen before, that wherever Jesus is, crowds gather, pressuring him to meet their physical needs to the point where he can't even eat a meal. He can't even care for his own needs. Now, all of this is very concerning to his family, as you can imagine. They've already heard about his busyness that we've seen. They've heard the reports from different people, um, all the craze surrounding Jesus. And so they make their way from Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, to now his ministry headquarters to Capernaum on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And look at verse 21. When his own people heard of this, it says, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. The word for translated people there is literally those of him. When those of him heard of this, it's broad language that could mean people such as his close friends. It could include those individuals. But strictly speaking, it refers to his physical family. As we see later on, and Mark picks up the narrative concerning his family in verses 31 through 35. So I like how the NIV and ESV translates this, family. It's specifically Jesus' family who has heard the report about him and who come to take custody of him, notice, in verse 21. It means to, to forcibly arrest him, to seize Jesus to take control of him. Why? Because, if you notice, they believe that he has lost his mind. He has lost his senses. The Greek there is even more explicit and emphatic. They went to seize him, believing that Jesus had gone berserk, that he had gone crazy, that he had gone mad. Perhaps that in in his desire to do good, he had become some radical, some, some misguided fanatic who needed to be, to be brought back in and controlled and tempered and so forth. It reveals a little bit of their view of Christ, doesn't it? You know, back in college, I had a similar, somewhat similar experience. Nothing compared to Christ, obviously. But, you know, a number of us college students over a period of three to six months came to know the Lord. We got saved. And so radical was the change in so many of our lives, a handful of us. That, I mean, we were just going bonkers. We wanted to to voraciously read the Word. We started reading all kinds of books. We started exposing ourselves to to just good literature, to good preaching. Um, I mean, I would would line up right after the Sunday morning message, hearing Pastor Alex Montoya back in the day at that home church, I would line up right after the message in line to get my tape so that I can listen to it at least once every single day. I mean, that's, that was very typical for, for us college students that had gotten saved. And we wanted to study and sing. And we stayed up in, at Bible studies on Friday nights at somebody's house late at night. Where eventually, all kinds of people, including even our own parents, began to ask themselves, what in the world is going on with our kids? I mean, what's up with them? And eventually, they thought that we had joined some kind of a cult. That maybe even our college shepherd was some kind of a cult leader. 
But see, what had happened, beloved, is that we had gotten saved. And we were just on fire for the Lord. And instead of people thinking that, wow, what, a, what an amazing work of God, they began to, to label us as well-intentioned fanatics. We were Jesus freak kind of college students. You know, I suppose that that was similar to what Jesus' family and, and others had come to believe about Jesus and the apostles, right? Who are preaching the gospel. Jesus is doing all kinds of amazing things. And instead of believing in him, oh, he's just, he's a well-intentioned individual, misguided fanatic, the religious leaders probably thought. Now listen, assuming the best, this is, Jesus' family's noble, perhaps, and misguided attempt to protect Jesus from himself. To maybe get him to, to think about not self-destructing, keep him from self-destructing. But what Mark is indicating here, and even later on in verses 31 through 35, is that just as the religious leaders, beloved, were, were mistaken concerning Jesus, even his own family, biological family, those who from a human perspective should have been supportive of him and believed in him, were people who were also not understanding him and opposing him at a certain level. They were doing the same thing as well. And at the heart of all of this, obviously, was unbelief. In John chapter 7, verse 5, John tells us that even his own brothers were not believing in him. Even his own brothers weren't. Mary probably did, as she gives evidence later on in following her son. But even his own brothers were not believing in him. Can I ask you this morning, who do you believe Jesus to be? Are you like Jesus' biological family who believes that Jesus, you know, he was a, a good, kind man, very well-intentioned, a wonderful teacher, one who had a great character. I'm sure that his family could vouch for that. He was sinless and blameless. I have no idea how to even, how to even imagine Jesus for 30 years before going public in his ministry, being perfect and blameless. But his family, I can promise you, would have been able to vouch for his character, right? That he was perfect, that he was blameless. They'd seen him for 30 plus years. They could speak to his morality. And maybe that's what they left it at. That he was a very moral man, a perfectly moral man. But morality doesn't save anybody. See, there are people with this same opinion about Jesus. But they don't believe in him. They have not entered into a true relationship, personal relationship with Jesus turning from their sins and trusting in Him. They don't believe in who He is, let alone what He did, that He's the one Redeemer and Lord of mankind. And so consequently, like His family, many people think that they know better than Jesus many times. That they know better than Jesus. That He's just like them. Just a little bit more moral than them. And from time to time, even Jesus needs our help, right? Even Jesus needs to knock on the door of our hearts so that we can give him permission to come in. See, many people entertain this kind of low view of Christ, a small view of Christ. We have a Jesus that we can stick in our pocket on our shirts, right? Rather than a high view of Jesus Christ, such as his own family did. His family, beloved, failed to see that he was not a misguided fanatic, 
But God in human flesh, who had come to accomplish a singular mission, which was to preach the gospel of the kingdom all the way to the cross, give himself for sinners on the cross, and on the third day rise from the dead. They'd fail to see him for that person that he was and that he is. Now notice here, then in verses 23 or 22 to 30, that the, the camera sort of pauses on that scene on Jesus' family to then focus on another group, on another group that comes along. In verses 22 to 30, we've seen how the religious leaders have been hounding Jesus over and over again. But now, mark it, beloved, there is a, an official delegation all the way from Jerusalem comes to visit Capernaum, a religious elite And these individuals come to render their official stance about Jesus' person and his works. They've already had exposure before, as the early um, uh, chapters of John tells us, when Jesus went into Jerusalem, the capital, and he actually cleansed the temple. Remember that? These individuals already know about Jesus. But now a year to a year and a half later, here comes an official delegation of religious leaders all the way from Jerusalem to check Jesus out and to try to discredit him. And we see that in verses 22 to 30. And as we look at this, I want to ask you a second question. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Is Jesus a deceptive foe? Is Jesus simply a deceptive foe? An enemy? Is that what he is? Look at verse 22. It says that the scribes, remember that these are the, 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 the experts of the scriptures, These guys are the enforcers of the Jewish law, these scribes. These are the religious elite, the theologians of the day, often referred to as lawyers. The scribes, verse 22, who came down from Jerusalem, were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. The idea there of we're saying means that they were continually saying this. This is what these are the rumors. These are the opinions that they were spreading around about Jesus continually. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Beelzebul there refers to the prince or the ruler of the demons. It could refer to Satan himself or one of his chief demons. Either way, what they are saying, beloved, listen, is that Jesus himself is indwelt by a demon and that the source of his power, of his miracles, including the casting out of demons, is derived from Satan himself. Look at verse 30. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. That is Mark's, uh, as the, narr- the, the, the narrator, giving us an explanation about Jesus' strong words. Why did Jesus have such a strong pronouncement against the religious leaders? Verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Keep that on the back of your mind. Whoa. I mean, these are serious charges, aren't they? What's going on here? I mean, even those who didn't believe in Jesus' claims didn't go this far. They didn't attribute to Jesus satanic influence. That he was indwelt and empowered by Satan or his cardinal demon. This is very, a very significant turning point here. And we need to keep that on the back of our minds in our study of Mark. 
Listen, thus far, the religious leaders have been watching him, questioning him, seeking to accuse him in order to get rid of Jesus. But now you have this official group of scribes, a religious elite from Jerusalem, from the capital, spreading rumors about him. And they know exactly what they're spreading about him concerning who he is, that he works for Satan. Think about the implications of that. And Jesus is actually going to talk to them about that right now. This is their official position regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. They're saying this even though Jesus has given them much proof, much evidence to believe. And this is what they're saying about him. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, quote, The malicious judgment of the scribes is evidence that faith and unbelief are not the result of proofs. There is a mistaken view out there that if only we saw the undisputed miracles of Jesus, we would believe or believe more. The scribes, however, have, been, have seen precisely such evidence, but they do not have faith. Faith, in other words, is not an automatic, inevitable, or necessary consequence of witnessing the acts and the miracles of God. The words and deeds of Jesus are indeed evidence of God's presence, but the evidence demands a decision from the beholder as to its source and significance, end quote. Great statement, isn't it? What is he saying? That people are always saying, even in our society today, if only I had been there, I would have believed. If only there are greater miracles, I can believe. The word of faith movement says, if only you have faith and you see these miracles, then you will believe. See, you need more miracles, more performances, more acts by false teachers so that we would believe. The scribes, beloved, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day are the perfect example of the fact that you cannot have enough evidence, enough proof, so as to believe. The problem is our wicked, rebellious, unbelieving hearts, right? That's the problem. The issue is our depraved hearts that won't believe. No matter what proof and no matter what evidence Jesus gives us, even recorded on the pages of his word, for us to never lose sight of the great works of Christ and his great words. Now notice, having heard their vicious rumors, Jesus responds now. And he responds strong, doesn't he? Strong. He first refutes their charges in verses 23 to 27, if you notice. And then he sternly warns them about the consequences and the implications of their charges should they not repent in verses 28 through 30. He refutes them and then he warns them very seriously. Look at verse 23. It says that he called them to himself. The parallel account in Matthew 12:25 says that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. They had been spreading rumors publicly, openly, viciously, maliciously behind his back to discredit him. But Jesus confronts them to their faces. And notice verse 23, and began speaking to them in parables. We know what parables are. They're literally the, the idea of a parable is something cast or thrown alongside of a truth in order to impress that truth upon someone. Jesus often told things like stories, illustrations, allegories alongside of a truth in order to convey that truth or impress that truth upon his hearers. 
And so notice at the end of verse 23, he asks a question first. How can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, are you saying, religious leaders, elite, that Satan is working against himself? Is that what you're saying? I mean, the Lord is going to show that the logical absurdity of what these religious leaders are saying and what their stance is, it doesn't make sense. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. I mean, Jesus is posing a very obvious, common sense truth here. Whether you're speaking on the macro level of a vast, complex kingdom, if that kingdom is divided or it isn't unified, eventually that kingdom will collapse, won't it? And on the micro level, if a household isn't unified, eventually it will fall apart. It will crumble. Satan of all beings knows this logical fact. He's not stupid. Almost in an indirect way, the Lord is giving credit to Satan. Satan isn't stupid, folks. Don't you understand what you're saying here? So you're saying Satan is working against himself? Notice verse 26. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. Jesus is trying to show them the foolishness of their accusations. And here's the the key principle truth that he's trying to impress upon them. No credible ruler is going to act against his own self-interest, let alone a very intelligent Satan who's been in existence even before human beings, hasn't he? If Satan is working against himself through Jesus, then Satan is no longer in authority. He's doomed. He's doomed. Their logic is faulty and absurd. And I love again and again, even here, yet another example of how our Lord Jesus Christ reasons with these guys to get them to think about what they are saying and in the process, hang themselves. So having said this, Jesus goes on to tell them what is going on. Let me tell you what is going on, verse 27. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. In essence, what Jesus is saying here is, you know what is happening, guys? Let me tell you, rather than working for Satan, I'm in the process of bringing him down, of dethroning Satan. The parable here is allegory in verse 27. Who is the strong man? Satan is the strong man. Who is, what is his house? It is his domain. And what are his property? His property are Satan's subjects, people who are victims under his control. In this context, even people who are demon possessed. But there is a stronger man with a capital M, King Jesus, who is plundering the possessions of this so-called strong man who is Satan. And he's doing it powerfully and definitively, isn't he? Listen, beloved, for 30 years, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, blameless life so that he could go to the cross and actually, as the blameless, spotless lamb, die for sinners on the cross. Satan has been defeating, I mean, Jesus has been defeating Satan for 30 years prior to his public appearance. And then... He defeated Satan for 40 days and and 40 nights. Remember we saw that in Mark chapter 1? 
When he goes into, he's taken by the spirit into the wilderness and Satan, there's an onslaught by Satan upon Jesus. Jesus withstands the, the onslaught of Satan and is victorious over him like the first Adam couldn't be. Then he's been defeating Satan over and over and over again with literally by healing hundreds and hundreds of people, doing mighty works, casting demons, showing great power. He's been defeating Satan right before their very eyes. But the ultimate defeat is coming, isn't it? And Mark is, we're heading that direction very, very quickly. Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to die for sinners on the cross. But on the third day, his father will vindicate his work victoriously by him rising from the dead, conquering sin and death. Jesus is going to win. And then finally, if we can look upon the future Finally, because of that victory at Calvary, one day in the future, Jesus will return to deliver the final death blow to Satan and establish a kingdom here on this earth. That is what's going on, is what Jesus is saying. There's a hostile takeover, folks. Hostile takeover by King Jesus. He's plundering the domain of the so-called strongman. And so in verse 27, that's what our Lord is talking about. There's victory taking place. He's not working for Satan. He's bringing Satan down. And so their vicious accusation that Jesus is indwelt and empowered by Satan or a demon is, is foolish, isn't it? It's foolish. But notice Jesus is not done with them, is he? Oh, no. He now, in verses 28 through 30, pronounces a stern warning against them, having refuted them. Now here's a stern warning. For if they continue in their official position, they will be without hope of forgiveness, i.e. salvation from their sins, if they continue down this path. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, what I'm about to tell you is absolute truth. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And why the shocking, unexpected warning from Jesus to this, these religious elite? Verse 30, notice, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Mark, as the narrator, specifically tells us about the sin. This is a huge passage here. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, this verse here. Because many a Christian and non-Christian has wondered if at some point in the course of their life they have been guilty of committing the so-called unpardonable sin. Maybe somebody in here believes that. Maybe somebody in here feels like I've done something so bad, so horrible in my life that I know that I could never be forgiven of that sin. Maybe you're here sitting this morning thinking that way. And given what's in this passage for all of us, it's a great question. What is Jesus referring to here? What is he referring to here? Well, I think like good exegetes. Students who, who draw out what is in the text and don't read into the text, we need to remember three basic rules and then make some observations here. Ready? Context, 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 right? Context, context, context. Many a faithful man, preacher behind this pulpit has reminded you, Calvary Bible Church, of the importance of context, context, context. I know you believe in it. We need to apply that to this particular passage. 
So there are three observations that I want you to make with me about this passage as we answer this question of what is Jesus referring to here? Observation number one, consider the audience. Consider the audience here. In other words, who is Jesus speaking to here? And please note this. Jesus is not speaking here to the great sinners of the day. The adulterers, the murderers, even the tax collectors and so-called sinners of the day. Jesus is not calling them out on the unpardonable sin, is he? Jesus is also not addressing the, the fickle, needy multitudes who are after him because they're after him for his gifts and miracles and wonders and so forth. Many of these people are, who are following him are following him in a misguided way, seeking to get something from him. Listen, all of those people need to also repent and believe in Jesus, yes, but he is not addressing them about the unpardonable sin, is he? Who's he addressing? He's addressing the religious elite, isn't he? Those who had full knowledge of the scriptures. Those who have heard his words, who have seen his works, those who should, if you want to put it this way from a human perspective, should know better. Should know better. It is to them that he's giving this devastating and frightening warning to. This religious elite. Observation number two. Consider the specific sin. Consider the specific sin. What specifically is the unique sin that Jesus is referencing here, talking about. He tells us what it is in verse 29, that the specific sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then Mark, as the narrator, tells us in verse 30, how were they blaspheming? Verse 30, Jesus was warning them so seriously because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were openly, knowingly, viciously, maliciously saying this. Where it says he has an unclean spirit, that's the same word unclean there that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 26, if you remember, concerning the demon there. It means filthy, immoral, putrid, wicked spirit. That's what they're saying about who is indwelling Jesus and his power. So the sin is very specific and particular. They were identifying the Holy Spirit working through Jesus as just another filthy, wicked, profane demon. And even if they didn't understand at that moment that that's exactly what they were alluding to, Jesus is going to make it clear to them, isn't he? And warn them about that. Listen, beloved, listen carefully. The unpardonable, unforgivable sin is not committing adultery, committing fornication, Sex outside of marriage or somebody not your spouse, getting a divorce, practicing homosexuality, murdering someone, even having an abortion and killing a baby and many other sins. All of those sins and like any other sin are sufficient to send a person to hell eternally separated from God if they do not repent and trust in Jesus in whom they can find forgiveness for all of those sins. All of those sins are forgivable. Even the murder on death road can be forgiven and has been forgiven, many of them. All of those sins are forgivable. So then what is the unforgivable sin? 
What is it? The specific sin that Jesus is warning them about is this. That the religious leaders of his day, at that historical time when Jesus is alive, were openly, consciously, viciously, and and blatantly defaming and slandering the Holy Spirit's witness concerning Jesus Christ. How? By saying that he was indwelt and empowered by a filthy demonic spirit. That's the issue. And Jesus warns them, if you continue down this path, you will forfeit the possibility of being forgiven. Your sin will have eternal consequences if they remain in that position. And it's not just unbelief. Please mark it. It's not just unbelief that is the unpardonable sin. All unbelief is a reflection of the rebellion of people's hearts, right? And if you are not believing, no matter how you categorize that unbelief, you will spend eternity away from God, your creator, unless you trust in Jesus Christ. But this is not just unbelief. The multitudes are unbelieving. And even his own family were unbelieving. His brothers in particular, as we're going to see. So listen closely. The unpardonable sin was unique to this particular group of people, this religious elite, and is unique to Jesus' day, to that moment of history when Jesus, the Son of God, was speaking concerning Himself, who He was, doing great signs by the power of the Holy Spirit, revealing that He was the Messiah, the Savior, and the religious leaders would not have it. And not only that, but they not only did they not believe in Him, but they had taken their official stance against Jesus, one of open and malicious defamation and slander of Jesus' person and who was empowering him. That was the issue. The work of the Spirit through Jesus Christ at that point in time. And Jesus makes the point, when you attribute what I do to the works of Satan, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit for everything that I do is in the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit comes, beloved, to earth, especially during the time of Jesus, to reveal the greatness and the glory of King Jesus in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, not to bring attention to any man, any signs and wonders or anything like that. The Holy Spirit came to exalt, to elevate Jesus Christ in our hearts. That was His work in salvation that is his ongoing work as we are exposed to the word of God to show us the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus so that we cherish and treasure him and lovingly obey him that's what the Holy Spirit's work is and they're saying it's the opposite Jesus is working for Satan so let me ask you can a Christian today commit the so-called unpardonable sin? I think the answer is no. No. Not this particular unpardonable sin here. It was unique to the religious elite during Jesus' day and very specific to that target audience. However, is there a caution for us here? Is there a caution for us here, even as Christians? And I would say yes. Yes. Walk closely with Jesus, in whom your salvation is secure. But make sure that you are not coddling sin in your life. 
not confessing sin before the Lord and others who love you, that your heart would become cold and hardened and insensitive to the truth of your Savior, right? Be careful. You know, I recall a, at another church, a young woman, and I get really sad every time that I think about this young lady. At a former church, my wife and I were ministering on youth staff there. And there was this young woman who professed salvation at one point. She was on fire for the Lord. I mean, she got baptized before thousands of people on a Sunday night. People were saying amen left and right. I remember just just very winsome personality. Talked about the things that God had been doing in her life and all of that. And she was just a very energetic, likable, influential young lady. We really thought over the years that, oh, the Lord is good. The trajectory of this young woman's life is, gonna, is really, really good. She's heading in a good, good direction. But years later, we heard about how this young lady was doing. A lot of things had changed. A lot of things had changed. She had begun to compromise in her life with sin. She had stopped reading the Word. She started getting into the world more and more. Pursuing the philosophies of the world, that was a big one for her, her thinking. When her thinking went, everything else went. And she began to to pursue pleasures, stop going to church. And long story short, beloved, now she's an outright, vocal, atheist, and hater of God, an open proponent of feministic thinking or feminism, and an open pro-abortion law person. Openly, consciously, a hater of God. That's where she's at now. What happened to her? What happened? Well, maybe she lost her salvation. No. Did she lose her salvation? No. The Bible says you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. Why? Because it's in the hands of God. If I could lose my salvation, I would lose it every single moment of the day. Right? Because do you perfectly love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength every minute of the day? Do you perfectly obey Him with all of your thoughts and intentions and motivations and all of that every single moment of the day? No. If we could lose our salvation, we would lose it every single day, beloved. Every single moment of the day. We cannot lose our salvation. First Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says that we are protected by the power of God for His salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. And in this salvation, he says, you greatly rejoice. Protected by the power of God, you cannot lose your salvation if you're truly saved. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them, my followers, my disciples, those who love me, who trusted in me, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my, of my hand. No one. And if that isn't enough, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Got two pretty strong chain links right there, don't you? And then there's the Holy Spirit. Got the triune God. Who's going to fight against them? You're going to take one of God's sheep out of the father's hand? Good luck with that. We don't believe in luck, by the way. So what happened to her? What happened to her? Well, beloved, it's true of her what it says in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 that describes some who to some extent or another were enlightened, 
who tasted of the good word of God, of the heavenly gifts, of, of knowledge of great truths, who appeared for a while to truly be followers of Christ, who beheld the power of God to some extent or another, maybe even in the church, maybe in the lives of other people, maybe in preaching, maybe to some extent or another in their service, but have fallen away, have publicly renounced Jesus Christ. They've apostatized. They've apostatized. And the caution for us is that we will not coddle sin so that our hearts may become hardened and cold to Jesus. Isn't that part of the warning of the writer of Hebrews? Let us be sure to enter that rest that the first generation Israelites, says the writer of Hebrews, failed to enter because of unbelief. He says, hold on to Jesus. Draw near to Jesus, the apostle of your confession. Cling on to the work of Christ. Stand upon the shoulders of what he's already accomplished in your life. Great gospel realities. Abide in Christ, John chapter 15. Remain close to Jesus. And we know that oftentimes it isn't even us doing it, right? We are humbling ourselves and saying, Lord, don't let me go. And you know what? God won't ever let you go if you belong to him, right? That the ultimate issue isn't even you holding on to the Lord, is that the Lord holds on to you and you merely submit to his grasp, don't you? Was there hope for these guys, even as Jesus' warning to them was given here? Here's observation number three God's lavish mercy. Please notice God's lavish mercy. You know what often happens here in the fear of what and the implications of verse 29 is that people just kind of glance over verse 28. They just kind of read right over that. Verse 28. Notice what it says. Truly I say to you, this is truth that you can depend upon. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But what did he just say in verse 28? He highlighted God's lavish mercy, didn't he? Often so overlooked, beloved, in reading of this passage. Listen, verse 28 speaks of the lavish mercy of God for all kinds of sins, including whatever blasphemies they utter, beloved. God is lavishly merciful. So that, listen, if you're convicted right now, right now of your ongoing rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, there is mercy for you even now in this moment at the cross. There's mercy, there's forgiveness, as there was for me. Confess your sin to God. Seek His forgiveness found in Jesus Christ by trusting in Him. Come to Him, who is God, who died for sinners on the cross and rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death, come to Jesus. Listen, if you are convicted this morning, then then that is proof positive, positive that you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Right? Even if it existed in this day and age. See, this becomes a warning to you if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ that you would not harden your heart any longer. God is lavishly 
merciful. He forgives all kinds of sins, even blasphemies that they utter. Paul referred to himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 as a blasphemer, and he says that God forgave him. God forgave him. He was shown mercy. He believed in Christ, was forgiven, and he was even called and given a wonderful privilege of ministering as the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to the nations. He was a blasphemer. Well, if there's hope for Paul, there's hope for us, isn't there? You know, as I studied this passage, I didn't have to look very far for an example of one who was a big blasphemer. All I had to do, beloved, is look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. You know, from the age of when I was born all the way to seven years old, I was in Mexico City. Lived with my biological mom those first seven years. And a stepfather who used to abuse my mom terribly. Some of you have had similar experiences, I know. Often would leave my mom bloodied on the floor. And I would wonder if she was alive. That was all, as far as I could remember. And I was conscious as a kid. All the way to seven. When all of that culminated in him shooting my mom right in front of me. At the age of seven. But let me tell you something. I was not a victim of my circumstances. Did you hear that? I wasn't a victim of my circumstances. Yes, certain things in our past might explain our weaknesses and our struggles, but ultimately we are accountable before a holy God for our own sin because we are by nature sinners and we live our whole lives proving that we are by nature sinners, right? We're sinners ourselves who have rebelled against God. And you know what was such a huge, visible example of that for me? That before my mom was murdered, I would often be sent to the nearby bakery to just buy bread because we couldn't afford to eat. Just to buy bread for our family. And beloved, I kid you not. I wish that I could show a video of this up there. I would oftentimes shake my fist and point to this guy and say, I hate you, God. In Spanish. I hate you, God. And I would yell profanities at him or pray profanities at him. I hated God. Shake my fist at the sky, blaspheme the very name of God. I was the worst kind of sinner. And beloved, I'm here to tell you, God saves people like me. Amen? God saves people like us. He changed me. He helped me understand that I'm not a victim of my circumstances. That, yeah, there are things that might explain or exacerbate our sinfulness. But I was a sinner who needed to come and repent from my sins and my rebellion against God and put my trust in my only hope, King Jesus, who could one day make all of those things, including my mom's murder, right in the gospel, right? God is lavishly, lavishly merciful, beloved. Lavishly merciful. Well... Now the third question is, rather than being an enemy of God, I have one last question for you, and we're going to look at this question next week, but I'll give it to you now. Is Jesus your divine family? Is Jesus your divine family? Jesus is divine. He's God. So ask yourself this morning, am I part of his family? Am I part of his family? And he's going to bring that home, that point home in verses 31 through 35. We'll look at that next week. All right? Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we thank you so much for your lavish mercy upon us. We thank you for the fact that, Lord, all kinds of sins and even blasphemies uttered can be forgiven. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful for your rich grace, your lavish grace, your super abounding grace. We pray, Father, that those who are here this morning who are Christians, who trusted in, in your Son, might celebrate that wonderful grace. I pray for those who don't know you, that, Lord, today they might find a merciful, gracious God, and that they would trust in your Son, that they would come to know him in a personal way, that they would count the passing pleasures of this world as not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in Christ someday in the future. Oh, Lord, I pray for your mercy upon people this morning, that sinners would come to know you, that people would be born again this morning. We ask you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.